Hello everyone, so this is going to be my final episode about this subject. This is part four of questions that people of faith would ask me. So, I'm going to put out a disclaimer. My words are not about preventing anyone from being faith-based. My words are about the serious studying that I've engaged in about religion because that's the journey that I'm on and I take this journey earnestly and seriously. So... My goal that I'm successful in is not to promote religious intolerance, not to promote religious wars, not to promote religious violence, not to promote religious persecution, not to promote denominational tribalism, not to promote house of worship tribalism, not to promote everybody not being religious. No, I don't have any of those attitudes in my heart, mind, soul whatsoever. I'm telling you what it's like for me to have had the history with religion that I was encountering from the time I was with my grandma Claire all the way to now. And I want to put this disclaimer out. I enjoy the mature believers in my life. They're excellent colleagues and and I have and they're excellent at being at being my true friends, okay? And I don't have any phobias against houses of worship at all. I don't have any phobias against any denominational community. I don't have any phobias against any religious texts. What I'm doing is healing the churchianity compound trauma of my past. So after my episode on Jesus tomorrow, I'll be doing positive episodes about religion down the line. Because I feel like after these two episodes, this one and the Jesus episode I'll be publishing tomorrow, that I've said everything about religion in terms of what's concerning about it. Now I get to do episodes on, after these two episodes are published, about the positives that religion has brought in terms of many of the people. 
So this is therapeutic for me. So without further ado, let us officially begin. What is my view on the quote-unquote higher view of scripture being the authoritative quote-unquote word of God? I'm only saying quotations because I'm seeing these general beliefs in Wikipedia, so let me say it differently. So what is my view on the higher view of scripture being the authoritative word of God? Well, I noticed throughout the Old Testament that I see God's deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group within the aim of destroying that nation or group. So, in the Bible, I see God causing adults, children, infants, and animals being the victim of his divine genocide, his divine racial killing, his divine massacre, his divine wholesale slaughter, his divine mass slaughter, his divine wholesale killing, his divine indiscriminate killing, his divine mass murder, his divine mass homicide, his divine mass killings, his divine mass destruction, his divine annihilation, his divine extermination, his divine elimination, his divine liquidation, his divine eradication, his divine decimation, his divine butchery, his divine bloodbath, his divine bloodletting, his divine pogrom, his divine ethnic cleansing, his divine holocaust, his divine shoah, his divine slang, his divine batu, and his divine hecatomb, his divine hecatomb. And those are nauseating imageries of God to me because I can I cannot reconcile adoration with obliteration. And I have never been able to grasp how so many people feel that it is okay to have God pictured as, I can do it, but you can't. They conjure up this do as I say, not as I do version of Yahweh. And I've also could never hold on to the na-na-na-boo-boo. I'm going to rub my lordship in your face lens of seeing Jehovah.
and what is troubling about those perspectives on the supreme being is that it makes people think that it makes people who are criminals think that well assassination is divine child murder is divine consensual homicide is divine contract killing is divine crime of passion is divine depraved heart murder is divine Foeticide is divine. Honor killing is divine. Felony murder rule is divine. Human sacrifice is divine. Child sacrifice is divine. Adult sacrifice is divine. Infant sacrifice is divine. Internet homicide is divine. Lonely hearts killers are divine. Lust murder is divine. Lynching is divine. Mass murder is divine. Mass shooting is divine. Mass stabbings are divine. Misdemeanor murders are divine. Murder for body parts are divine. Murder-suicide is divine. Poisoning is divine. Proxy murder is divine. Serial killers are divine. Spree killers are divine. Pseudo-commandos are divine. Angel of mercy is divine. Thrill killing is divine. Torture murder is divine. Vehicle ramming attacks are divine. Wrongful execution is divine. Judicial murder is divine. License to kill is divine. War is divine. Assisted suicide is divine. Capital punishment is divine. Euthanasia is divine. Vorticide is divine. I say again. Justifiable homicide is divine. A vuncilicide is divine. Nepoticide is divine. Familiacide is divine. Meriticide is divine. Exuricide is divine. Prolicide is divine. Filicide is divine. Infanticide is again is divine. Neonaticide is divine. Siblicide is divine. Fratricide is divine. Sauricide is divine. Parasite is, parasite is divine. Matricide is divine. Sinicide is divine. Crucifixion is divine. Deicide is divine. Democide is divine. Friendly fire is divine. Gendercide is divine. Femicide is divine. Androcide is divine. Genocide is divine. Omnicide is divine. Regicide is divine. Stoning is divine. Turnicide is divine. War crimes are divine. Voluntary manslaughter is divine. Negligent homicide is divine. Vehicle manslaughter is divine. Vehicle homicide is divine. And homicide is divine. First degree murder is divine. Second degree murder is divine. Third degree murder is divine. I am uncomfortable with the concepts of the serial killer God, the killing spree God, the mass murderer God, 
the mass killings God, the homicidal God, and the genocidal God. This is why it, this is one of the reasons why I do not think that the Bible is 100% the word of God because it makes it easy for crime families to enjoy their gang banging. So, second second question. Well, I mean, before I get to the second question, there are parts of the Bible that if you want to call them divine, you sure can. For example, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost son, the parable of the rich fool. Jesus giving a blind man a voice in front of the pharisaical leadership of his day. Jesus using children to accomplish his extraordinary feats. You can call them miracles if you're faith-based. Jesus having parents bring their kids to him, putting his hands on them non-abusively and blessing them and teaching the disciples to have the humility of a, ch- of a child. So those are divine parts of the Bible. What I described to you in terms of the war general God depicted it in the Old Testament. I call them demonic parts of the Bible. Because you can't say that you are a loving entity, but you have this crime boss persona. Now let's get to the second question for this episode. What is my view on the belief in the authority of the Bible as God's revelation to humanity? Well, I've noticed as I have studied the Bible, I have recognized, according to me learning from credible scientists and credible scholars, that... The Bible has undergone revisions, emendations, corrections, alterations, interpolations, changing, adaptations, editings, copy editings, rewritings, redraftings, recastings, rephrasings, 
rewordings, reworkings, updatings, revampings, being tampered with, up, up, updations, reconsiderations, reviews, reexaminations, reassessments, reevaluations, repraisals, rethinkings, rethinking, rethink. Repeatedly thinking over modifications, transformations, renditions, variants. Mistranslations, mistransliterations, and incorrect versions. So if the Bible is 100% God's revelation to humanity when it comes to being the authority of the Bible then it should never have experienced the act of revising in a revised edition or form of itself. So Because of that, I do not fully believe in the authority of the Bible as God's revelation to humanity. Don't get me wrong. There are parts of the Bible... That if you want to call them divine revelation to humanity in terms of emphasizing doing for the least of these and connecting that to Jesus, for example, what you do for the least of these, what you do for me, Jesus said, and what you basically what you don't do for me, what you don't do for the least of these, what you don't do for me. Don't do for least these what you don't you don't do for me. I repeat that. That if you want to call that divine revelation to humanity, I'm cool with that. If you want to call that a healthy authority of the a healthy way of having authority of the Bible, that would make sense to me. So, what is my view on Bible inerrancy? Well,
This is what I've learned from credible scientists and credible scholars. There are over 450 English versions of the Bible. All are translated using different methods and from entirely different manuscripts. Thousands of manuscripts disagreeing with each other wildly and what verses and even books they contain and how those verses read. Different translations teach entirely different things in places, some often leaving out entire chapters and verses or containing footnotes warning of possible error due to uncertainty about the reliability of the numerous manuscripts and the availability of current estimates that 2,251 languages representing 193 million people lack a Bible translation. Which means that the Bible... is a poorly compiled piece of work. And based on what I've studied from credible scientists and credible scholars, There are even forgeries in scripture. There are myth there's mythology in scripture. There is fiction in scripture. And according to credible scientists and credible scholars, the Bible is filled with Textual inconsistencies, historical inconsistencies, scientific inconsistencies, mathematical inconsistencies, logical inconsistencies, moral inconsistencies, inconsistencies, and literary inconsistencies. In other words, the Bible is filled with textual errors, historical errors, scientific errors, mathematical errors, logical errors, moral errors, and literary errors. E-R-R-O-R-S And according to credible scientists, credible scholars The Bible is filled with Inaccuracies uh, Contradictions Fallacies and logical fallacies, too. So that what has drawn me to believe that Bible inerrancy has not been proven to be true. Um, There are geographical errors in the Bible. Uh, 
There are geographical inconsistencies in the Bible as well. And this is what troubles me about the concept of Bible inerrancy. The fact that the Bible has anonymous authors, unsigned authors, nameless authors, unknown authors, unnamed authors, unacknowledged authors, unclaimed authors, unidentified authors, secret authors of unknown authorship, authors without a name, authors bearing no name, authors who are incognito, pseudonymous authors, and not all the authors are named, not all the authors are signed, and not all the authors are acknowledged, just shows that biblical inerrancy is untrue. So what is my view on biblical infallibility? Well, I've studied the Bible, and according to credible scholars and credible scientists, the lost books of the Bible the fact that there were books pushed out of the original canon shows that the Bible is unfinished, not completed, uncompleted, undone, incomplete, imperfect, unconcluded, deficient, unaccomplished, sketchy, in the rough, shapeless, formless, unperfected, unfulfilled, undeveloped, unassembled, Defective, found wanting, cut short, immature, faulty, crude, rough, under construction, half done, unexecuted, deficient, in preparation, in the making, not done, tentative, in the rough, partial, hmm. The fact that the Bible is not done, not complete, not perfected, that's just... (sighs) Causes me severe bafflement, severe bewilderment to... And also... The fact that the Bible Apocrypha Which are biblical or related writings not forming part of the accepted canon of scripture while some 
might be of doubt, doubtful authorship or authenticity Christianity. The word apocryphal was first applied for writings which were to be read privately rather than the public context of church services. Apocrypha were edifying Christian works that were not considered canonical scripture. It was not until well after the Protestant Reformation that the word apocrypha was used by some ecclesiastics to mean false, spurious, bad, or heretical. The fact that that exists in the world of Christianity causes me sadness and grief. <sighs> the fact that there are non-canonical books referenced in the Bible, which includes non-biblical cultures and lost works of known or unknown status, <sighs> causes me to feel chronic stress of my soul. Whew. And then another thing that's disturbing about the concept of biblical infallibility. Why didn't Jesus create the miracle of no one being illiterate, uneducated, unenlightened, unlettered, and untutored in his time before he left Earth and why didn't God make sure that no one was illiterate before Jesus even came to Earth? So now, illiterate people have to go by what Pharisees had to say, but they couldn't read Scripture, the Torah, for themselves. They couldn't critically think regarding the Torah for themselves. That's just heartlessness to me. That's soullessness to me. That's mindlessness to me. That's what I call cold-blooded and cold-hearted. And then my last thoughts on biblical infallibility are if the Bible was not incoherent, which unfortunately it is, then you would need to have interpretation arguments because you wouldn't need interpretations to begin with. You would easily get what it's saying. You would easily understand what all the denotations, connotations of the verses are saying. You would easily understand all the meanings and definitions and etymology of what the words are saying. There would be no conflict, confusion, or mystery to what 
scripture proclaims. There would be no need for exposition of the text in the first place. So what is my view on biblical literal biblical literalism? I feel that the biblical text is unclear in many passages. So therefore, I'm not a biblical literalist because because there is vagueness ambiguity and perplexity to scriptural passages. The Bible is not a cohesive unit of its own. The Bible doesn't do a good job of explaining the parts that we should take as literal and the parts that we should take as figurative. The fact that conflation is easy to do when it comes to the Bible is... a form of ridiculousness to me. And plus, science is into self-correction. Self-peer review, self-reexamination, self-changing, self-evaluation. But religion rejects all those things when it comes to their religious texts. So science loves proving itself wrong. Religion blocks that when it comes to its own what they call holy books. So there's subpar writing in the Bible. (laughs) 
So, I reject biblical literalism. I also reject what they call biblicism, too, which is another word for biblical literalism. Um, so, what are my views on Bible prophecy? I've always had a hard time with people talking about the last days. So people have been talking about the last days for centuries. And these are the same people that talked about they knew when Jesus was going to come, but he would never come when they would say he would come. So, I think that it is a tragedy that believers of all Christian stripes of denominations are not on one accord on how is Bible prophecy affirmed or not affirmed. So... I feel like my message believers is if you believe in Bible prophecy, you should also believe that let God decide Bible prophecy instead of y'all. What is my view and the belief of the understanding that the Bible in its original manuscripts is the final authority in all matters in which it speaks or on matters of faith and religion? Well, I'm concerned about that because the Bible in certain passages promotes human rights abuses, human rights violations, civil rights abuses, civil rights violations, political rights abuses, political rights violations, economic abuse, economic violation, economic rights abuses, economic rights violations, social rights abuses, social rights violations, and cultural rights abuses and cultural rights violations. So... I'm not sure if the Bible is the best source for final authority because of that. And I'm not sure that the Bible is the final authority when it comes to all subject matters because of that as well. Yes, there are parts of the Bible that t- that have that have that promote human rights, equal rights, political rights, civil rights, economic, social, cultural rights. When it comes to the least of these and other passages, that is true. But again, it's easy to be cliquish with scripture, which is revolting to me. So what is my view on what is called sola scriptura? Um... 
Well... I feel that Sola Scriptura has been proven to be profoundly, immeasurably ineffective because it is so easy to use the Bible to Christianize cruelty, Christianize brutality, Christianize barbarity, Christianize sadism, Christianize inhumanity, Christianize barbarism, Christianize mercilessness, Christianized wickedness, Christianized coarseness, Christianized ruthlessness, Christianized severity, Christianized malice, Christianized rancor, Christianized venom, Christianized coldness, Christianized unfeelingness, Christianized insensibility, Christianized indifference, Christianized fierceness, Christianized bestiality, Christianized Ferocity, Christianized savagery, Christianized grimness, Christianized monstrousness, Christianized inflexibility, Christianized fiendishness, Christianized hardness of heart, Christianized bloodthirstiness, Christianized torture, Christianized relentlessness, Christianized persecution, Christianized harshness, Christianized atrocities, and to Christianize... deplorableness <sighs> you can christianize heartlessness you can christianize A lack of empathy. You can Christianize the absence of compassion. You can Christianize the missing sympathy, too. It's so easy for, for hard hearted. monsters to Christianize no kindness, Christianize no benevolence, and Christianize no humanity. Mm. What are my thoughts on the doctrine of original sin? Credible scientists and credible scholars have not discovered the original sin gene, the sin nature gene, nor the fallen nature gene into our human biology. We don't fully know what makes someone a positive person. We don't know what makes someone a malevolent minister society we don't know what makes someone complex as human beings we don't fully know I dare say that 
most people in my view are not born in sin and shaped in iniquity because most people are not pure evil. Original sin means that everybody's born pure evil, which is untrue. The fact that more people do positivity than negativity disproves original sin. Um, There has not been a sinner gene that credible scientists, credible scholars have found in our DNA. Um, But it does feel like how can a Hitler or Stalin, for example, maybe they fit the original sin concept. But then that would ask, then I would ask the question, are dictators born dictators? Are child abusers born child abusers? Are adult abusers born adult abusers? Are they born in child abuse and shaped in child abuse at birth? Even at the moment of conception? Are they born in adult abuse and shaped in adult abuse at birth? Even at the moment of conception, are dictators born? Dic- are they born in dictatorships and shaped in dictatorships at birth in the moment of conception? Uh, is fascism inherent in someone's nature at birth, or is that already there the the moment of conception? That's how I feel about the subject. Besides, being imperfect is not a sin. No deity is offended by the fact that we're not it. (laughs) It's okay to be wholesome holistic and whole and being imperfect does not get in the way of those three excellent human qualities that we possess. So what are my views on the Trinity? I feel like there should be a quaternity instead of a trinity. God, the woman. God, the non-binary spirit. God, the child. And God, the man.
So, how do I feel about the virgin birth of Jesus? I am concerned that when the virgin birth is traditionally talking about regarding Jesus as known also known as the Immaculate Conception, I've always been disconcerted by the notion that Mary was not far removed from preteen years. Um some say between 13, 15. Um, but that still is sickening to me because no person around the, that age bracket should be having anybody's child. They should be learning life skills in school and at home. And they should be focused on academic prowess as well as noble character prowess. And I feel that also the virgin birth has been used easily to encourage sex negativity, whorephobia, hierarchy, rape culture, and the absence of both bodily integrity and bodily autonomy. And I feel that there's nothing wrong with Jesus being born natural biological way. And my thing is, if you are the human version of God, then you being born the natural way, you can create a way where you're born the natural way and you're still sinless. I'm like, you're God. You can make that happen because... You have a role that nobody will ever have, which is being God. So I've always felt that virginity was an abusive, traumatic social construct that is the most traumatizing to women and girls. Because when people think of virgins, they don't think of males, they think of females. And people will use celibacy to diminish LGBTQI plus people. And I've always felt that it also encourages, you know, the gum on the back of shoes type of teachings that sexual purity people will teach women and girls the most. But they don't apply that to males as much as they do to females. So I've always been weirded out by that. So that's how I feel about the subject. Okay. I and I also want to talk about what are my views on Jesus' statement, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John chapter 14, verse 6. Well, I recognize that followers of Jesus come in many stripes. You have Muslim followers of Jesus. 
You have Judaism followers of Jesus. You have Buddhist followers of Jesus. You have Confucius. You have Hindu followers of Jesus. You have secular followers of Jesus. You have Confucianism followers of Jesus. You have pagan followers of Jesus. You have earth-centered followers of Jesus. You have humanist followers of Jesus. You have followers of Jesus who consider themselves free thinkers. You even have atheist followers of Jesus. Christian atheism is real. Um, You have Christian agnosticism. That's real. And you have followers of Jesus who are in the Middle East. So a lot of people, there are many people in like Iraq, for example, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, who they follow Jesus in secret because it's easy to go, oh, those places are all Muslim. No, many of Jesus' followers have to be his adherent behind closed doors. And when they pray to Jesus, they cannot be overheard by anybody. Because that's how they get executed. So there are followers of Jesus, even in predominantly atheistic China. In fact, if you're seen with a Bible that you smuggled, because China rejects human rights, automatic execution. So there is persecution of Jesus followers around the world. It's not because America is mostly Christian, there's more Christians than anybody else in America. So persecution here is very little. Occasionally you have the horrible, terrible church bombings. And yes, synagogues, mosques sadly get bombed. And that's horrible and terrible too. But when it comes to... um, followers of Jesus, some followers of Jesus call themselves Christians and some followers of Jesus do not call themselves Christians. So I feel like with that statement that was is attributed to Jesus in the book of John, I feel that there's more than one way to follow Jesus. Conservative theology is not the one and only way to follow Jesus. Because I've met many people who've had such a reverence for Jesus, and they weren't the type to believe every biblical orthodoxy belief. They didn't, but they held on to Jesus. I'm talking about God believers and people who were non-believers, unbelievers. When it came to God, but that, but that Jesus, they were captivated by Him. So I feel like the universal Christ consciousness has a plurality to it, has a diversification to it. So I know that is sh- 
shocking to a lot of people who value biblical orthodoxy, but you can have biblical or unorthodoxy and still please Jesus. I met a lot of people who it fits well for them. Okay. So my state, so how I feel about the belief that the resurrection of Christ, as Jesus called, is seen as the most important actual event in the history of the world. What are my views on that? I feel that I definitely have an affinity for Jesus myself. But I'm a non-religious adherent to Jesus. Because I recognize that following Jesus was never an issue for me. Because I never went about him in a biblical orthodoxy way. Which was a which is a saving grace for my life. The problem was I was given a Jesus, and I don't blame my grandma Claire because she gave me an accurate depiction of Jesus. I blame the right wingers I was surrounded by because they gave me a view of Jesus that was predicated upon being the sexual private life police, being the gender identity, private life, police, and also a, a churchianity, Pharisaism, Jesus, that I cannot relate to. And so that is what I have uh, come to understand is that that was therapeutic for me in terms of resurrection of Christ I, I love the imagery in my mind of the resurrection of the Jewish autistic black Christ who is an abuse survivor. Imagining Christ is imagining myself. The resurrection of the conservative theology Christ is not what I adopt for myself because that type of Jesus would be easily championed by the autocratic Trumpism. So what are my views on, let's just go for it, the physical, the literal physical resurrection of Jesus? Well, I've always felt that there are instances in life where some people were brought back to life literally on the met, on their hospital bed. They're declared dead, and then one, then one second, they just woke up, and they were awake ever since. So there is some form of people being brought to life. How does that happen? I do not fully know. I, I'm just telling stories of interacting with people, doing research where that person was counted out, and, and somehow they just woke up, and they could talk in full length 
complete conversational sentences and they could move around all willy-nilly and their memory was, as people say, impeccable. So I do know that there is some kind of physical resurrection of people because they were counted dead and all the signs point to them being dead. And I'm not saying that to win favors with anybody. I'm just telling you what I know from what I've interacted with people. They've actually done this and I've done actual research and many doctors and scientists and scholars have said that these things happen. And I've read accounts of the real life accounts on the internet and they were all credible like these things actually happen. And to this day, the experts don't know what happened. They, they, some may say a miracle. Some call that an extraordinary feat. Some call that prodigal, prodigal. Um, and some just call that just amazing. So I do think that based upon my credible research that you don't always stay dead in every situation that you say that you're dead in, right? Um, so it could be possible that he was physically resurrected. I, I let that possibility be there based upon talking to people that had a similar outcome for themselves. So, I mean, I wish it was fully verified by science and scholarship. Um, that would be even cooler. That's why I call it a possibility. You know. Um, the... The literal physical return of Jesus. How do I feel about that? Well, we, we, you know, we're told we never know when he comes back, right? We hear that all the time. And um, I always felt that For Jesus to come back, hmm. a part of me thinks he never left because the the way he impacts people now, I'm like, did you really leave? Because you're talked about every day. Billions of people live by him every day. And... He's the most influential, the most famous public figure of all time. He's num- He's the number one celebrity. I know that followers of Jesus don't like to see him that way. I don't either, but according to our modern culture, he's the number one celebrity. He is the most impactful, the most impartation person ever in the history of all histories and these have been proven to be true based upon bible sales bible version sales based upon christians being the most popular people in the world the proof is in the pudding even the bible in the best other book of all time and it is and it continues to sell well every day because more and more people 
are interested in him. So they, some people, you know, free Bibles are are sold like hot, as they say, sell like hot cakes, hot cakes. You got free Bibles that are just freely distributed in large numbers every day. And people buy Bibles every day. So that's why Jesus becomes more and more famous every day. And um, a part of me is like, I don't think he ever truly left because of how he lives on in the hearts of other people. And a part of me is like, he's always been here in terms of being in people's minds and hearts and souls. He's always been here. So that's why I've read that the Bible. I'm like, I don't think Jesus ever left earth because he's this person that is claimed by some people in all human groups. I mean, even non-believers, a lot of them, not all, they don't have a problem with him. They have a problem with the distortions of him. I've heard non-believers say, I like him. I just don't like what these extremists have done to him. These are non-believers, and they are saying this. So a part of me is wondering, you know, like, maybe there's no need for him to return because he never left. You know what I mean? I feel that Jesus even impacted my, you know, enslaved black ancestry. That's why Frederick Douglass talked about Jesus in his three autobiographies, because I read them. Now, Harriet Tubman had a relationship with Jesus, according to her. That's why she had 19 trips to the South, freed over 300 black persons from slavery. And she attributed all that to Jesus. So, I feel that um, I wish science and scholarship would fully verify his physical return. You know, because it would be awesome to uh, really experience that because I'm not afraid of Jesus coming back or Jesus resurrected. I'm not afraid. Um, I always felt like, you know, that I would I would be open to talking with him. You know, because you know I feel like all my questions would be answered. So. Um, how do I feel about, um, heaven? Well, this is how I feel about heaven. I always felt that heaven 
is where all the good people go. I've had that belief ever since my grandma Claire told me about heaven. I always felt that there's no discrimination in heaven between believers and non-believers in my view because non-believers have solid character. Believers too. Most people are believers, have solid characters, and most people who are non-believers have solid characters, so I can't understand why God would be so angry that you didn't believe all the biblical orthodoxy beliefs, but, you know, all the social justice you did for other people, all the servant leadership you've shown, I just got to overlook all that and you put yourself in hell. I don't think God does that to people. I've always felt that God welcomes anyone with a decent heart, whether they're believers or non-believers. A part of me honestly thinks that God doesn't care if you believe everything the church tells you. I feel like God is more into what kind of human being are you and why? If you're pure-hearted, if you're not a believer, God, I don't think God is angered by that. I think God is more like, all right, you're pure-hearted? Yep. For all the pure-hearted reasons? Yep. All right, come on up here. Rest for a mighty long while. That's how I, that's how I believe that God treats people. I don't feel like Jesus being the Savior of the world means... If you're a non-believer, you're temporarily screwed, eternally screwed. No. I feel like Jesus is even exemplified in non-believers too. I know. I've experienced it, and I've witnessed other people experiencing it with me. Um... I feel like, um... I've asked for hell. I've I've always had a tough time with the eternal part because billions of people enduring eternal abuse, eternal trauma, and eternal victimization. But mo- most of the billions of people in the world mean. Uh, mean themselves and everybody else no harm. Most people are harmless regardless of what they believe and don't believe. So I've always felt like eternal agony is not true for most people. I've always felt like if there was an eternal hell Mussolini and Idi Amin I could see them being there. Um, But I feel like with hell... Many, you know, scholars and scientists say if there's a real hell, it is most likely uh, purgative, purgatorial, corrective, remedial, restorative, short-lived hell. Um, 
I don't fully know what happens when we die. Is it possible for eternal hell to be real? Yes. Is it also possible for eternal hell to be false? Yes. Um, I've always felt like when we die, there is some semblance of paradise that we experience. Because I've always felt that goodness never dies. Goodness always multiplies. So I feel like when we die, there's going to be goodness and greater goodness that we can't fully explain. I think greater goodness never dies. Great, greater goodness always multiplies too. And that's just been a conviction that has been helpful to me. Now, I've heard people say there's no life after death. That may be a possibility. And I think it's also a possibility there could be life after death. Hey, I don't fully know. When you take a last breath, what fully happens to your soul, I don't know, because I'm still alive. But I've always believed that when I take my last breath, I will end up with my Grandma Clara forever. And I believe that because I've always felt that I would get a second chance with her. I may not have had the best start with her the way we would have liked, but I always felt that when I close my eyes, she'll be the very first person I see and speak with. That belief has always been therapeutic to me. And plus, I feel that there is a form of a second chance that we get. I don't know what that fully entails, but I do feel like I get, I'll get to see her again. It's a it's it's just a belief that has truly been healing to me. Also, I just don't think that whoever made this world would know that you need that loved one and they go on and y'all don't get to be together anymore. I just don't think whoever made this world would be that way manner of operating at all you know um i'm open to purgatory being real because hey some people may have mental illnesses that they cannot control that doesn't make them bad people i feel like purgatory applies to those kinds of people they had their their brains could not handle certain things but they were good people though but they had these brain issues and it caused mental illnesses lapses of judgment i feel like purgatory is best applied to that situation i feel like purgatory is only applied to people who are truly good but their choices were truly outside of their control And purgatory is a way of washing away all those mental illnesses so they can have some kind of paradise to eternally enjoy. Purgatory may not be real. Purgatory may be real. But that's how I feel about this subject. Um, Now... This many people ask me what many believers ask me what is my view on 
Christ's redeeming work on the cross is the only means for salvation and forgiveness of sins. I've thought about that much more than I've ever done in my life. Recently, I've been thinking about it more. And this is my answer. I feel that Jesus was on the cross not because he tolerated us. Not because we're filthy trash. Not because we're human revulsion. I feel like Jesus died on the cross to show us what commitment to social justice, commitment to compassion, commitment to empathy means. Um, For example, many people will say Jesus claimed to be God. That's how I look at it. He was claiming to be a healthy representation of the divine. And the divine for Jesus is that um, he sacrificed himself in order to show his commitment to the well-being of women, the well-being of girls, the well-being of boys, the well-being of men, the well-being of non-binary adults and non-binary children, um, the well-being of the least of these, the most. I think that Jesus lived for the least of these the most and died for the least of these the most. I feel like Jesus was a threat to the Roman Empire because there were people who were disenfranchised who chose him over them and he was saying that I am what I'm about what I'm doing is divine I the least of these are the most of these and the most of these are the least of these that was his biggest focus on the concept of divinity for himself and for the and for the people he was helping out So I feel like Jesus was crucified for being a public nuisance for justice. And he was also crucified for claiming to embody divinity from the standpoint of moral universalism and universal value. In other words, he was basically saying the God in me. And what does the God in me mean, according to Jesus? Basically, the kindness in me, the big-heartedness in me, the warm-heartedness in me, the tender-heartedness in me. That's what he was talking about. And I feel like that's a way of looking at salvation non-religiously. I've always preferred the term preservation because your, your intrinsic pricelessness is what I want you to hold on to. I want to help you to do it. And you don't need to be completely by the book of the religious text to, to go to help, to, for me to help you go about it. And I like that Jesus helped Jesus allowed people to guide themselves to their own answers in their lives 
he wasn't always blurting out the answers to them because that's what good excellent therapists do they 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 watch you walk to the wisdom of your own life they don't try to dictate the wisdom of your life for you and i think that's what jesus was about i feel like um in my view um I never got a vibe from Jesus that he was this biblical orthodoxy Jesus. That's not the Jesus I follow. I follow the biblical unorthodoxy Jesus because that kind of Jesus is comfortable even with people that reject conservative theology like I do. And I feel that... um, I feel like when I talk about forgiveness of sins, to me, I think Jesus died to show people that I didn't die because y'all were bad. I died because I want y'all to understand that costly compassion will require you to pay up metaphorically. I feel like his death was about and I and this is these are my non-religious interpretations now. I feel that his death was about understanding that when you choose to stand against autocratic governments an autocratic leadership. Some of them might want your blood because you're standing for the very people they marginalize with glee daily. And and he was like, you know what? Jesus' understanding of God, because yes, Judaism was his religion, His understanding of God was more like, well, I can't give people healthy meanings of God if I am arrogant towards the oppressed. So Jesus had a good, Jesus practiced the Good Samaritan theology within ancient Judaism of his day. I think that's why he was killed. Um, And I look at Jesus' statement of forgiveness. This is how I think about it. I feel like his statement of forgiveness was more about not excusing wrongdoing, not leaving people in their wrongs, and not overlooking injustice I think his way of forgiveness was more of also being a safe space for abuse survivors who feel like they cannot forgive the abusers for abusing them I don't think Jesus would apply 
you have to forgive 77 times 7 towards abuse survivors who feel like I can't have a relationship with God because I was abused or I can't forgive the abusers for what for the abuses they did against me. I don't think Jesus would make them feel ashamed for not forgiving. I think Jesus would say, hey, I understand. I don't hold that against you. You always have a safe space with me. And even when you die, you'll have a safe space with God. I feel like Jesus would say something like that, but he wouldn't use a lot of religious language and he would be sensitive. I'm only saying this because he was a man of faith, so that's how people of faith talk now. So I'm just respecting that part of him. So I think he would not eternally damn people who have legitimate reasons for not forgiving. That's just how I feel about the subject. Um, Now, I think the biggest one that people have been waiting for, believers, is what do you feel of the doctrine, the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Is that I do not think that the conservative theology Jesus is fully God and fully man. Um, because it is easy to use that kind of Jesus to be harmful to people who have left religion and houses of worship for legitimate purposes, that kind of Jesus is unhelpful. The kind of Jesus that people like me are open to is the kind of Jesus that does not defend the indefensible. The kind of Jesus I'm open to never defends human rights abuses nor human rights violations at all. So the kind kind of Jesus that I'm talking about would never defend slavery, would never defend phobias against gender and sexual diversity, would never defend genocide, would never defend atheist discrimination, would never defend Islamophobia, would never defend anti-Semitism, would never defend misogyny, would never defend misandry. These are, it's easy to use the Bible to defend all of the, these forms of the indefensible. And for me, I feel like I reject the conservative theology of Jesus also because 
when you value conservative theology, it is extremely rough to love people that are different than you. To love people who don't share your beliefs. To love people that don't vote like you, don't live like you, don't love like you, don't think like you, don't feel like you, don't do like you, don't speak like you. When you're a person like me who is into what is called radical inclusion, radical belonging, radical hospitality, I'm not, I don't experience any chronic stress that there are people in the world who reject biblical orthodoxy. I don't worry about them in this life. I don't worry about them in the afterlife. But when you have conservative theology, you have all of this chronic stress type of worries. And letting go of conservative theology, it makes me fully comfortable with people who are totally different than me. I don't feel a sense of inferiority. I don't feel a sense of superiority. And the people that are totally different than me, they don't feel a, a sense of superiority nor inferiority when it comes to me. So what I like about the life I've chosen to live is that I've, re- I've let go of conservative theology, Jesus, and I decided, well... I can hold on to Jesus. I just don't define him the way traditionalists say says he should be defined. I don't agree with the Bible writers every depiction of Jesus. I don't. And it's healthy cherry picking because I'm the type of cherry picker that my views protect everybody's equal rights. And my views on Jesus do exactly that. I decided Jesus is not the problem. The Bible writers' misdepictions of Jesus is the problem. Because Bronze Age, Iron Age is is no friend of the human rights movement. So the Bible writers would not make good friends of the human rights movement. They would be kicked out immediately for standing by what they wrote in terms of certain scriptural passages. But I'll say this. I don't think Jesus would ever say or do anything that would easily put him in the human rights movement enemy camp. The Bible writers, yes. Him, Jesus, no. So I was able to find a way where I could hold on to Jesus, but I fought the Bible writers for how they depicted him. Because it's possible that Jesus may not have intended for a book to be written and published about him. That's a possibility. I'm not saying he had anything to hide I don't think so what I'm saying is that maybe he did not want to be portrayed in certain ways and maybe he being 33 years old at the time of his death maybe he wasn't focused on having any literature 
um, stating anything about him. Maybe he was so focused on um, fighting for the oppressed and fighting oppressors, you know, fighting for the oppressed and fighting against oppressors that it may not have occurred to him that the Bible writers would say what they said about him because he was fully human. So, of course, his knowledge was limited. And then people say, but he was full of God. Well, here's the thing. Even according to the Bible, he said he didn't know certain times and days of God doing what God was going to do. So that lets me know that Jesus did have human limitations. But I do feel like he would never say or do anything to cause harm to anyone that has deconstructed and deconverted from religion. I think he would be their biggest champion. He would never say or do anything that would ruin their lives at all. The Bible writers would. Jesus never would. And so many people go, I would hold on to Jesus. Well, because I understand that at that time, uh, people weren't really big on fame like they are now. Like people weren't really big on physical descriptions back then. There wasn't a lot of emphasis on what you look like and being out there in front of crowds of people. Some people at the time, yes, but most of the people, it wasn't a thing. Besides, most people were illiterate. So you can insult them and they can't even read your insults about them. That's how bad illiteracy is. So in my view, I do think that Jesus was so focused on doing what he came here to do, which was to make, to, to give, to be the safe haven, safe space, safe grace, and safe place for unconventional, non-traditionalists like myself. And what I mean by that is he would never be offended by free-spirited, free-thinking, free-living, and free-loving people like me. He would go, you totally make sense to me. That's how I feel like Jesus was. I do not think that Jesus would be totally comfortable with the religious right. They would never get along at all. If Jesus were alive today, he would deconstruct and deconvert from religion himself. Because in his mind, you... you and y'all biblical orthodoxy people, we have absolutely nothing in common. We have everything in common with the people that are no longer in these pews because they grasp me and y'all don't and y'all lie about grasping me. So that's how I look at um, my views on these um, weighty topics and I feel that um, 
for example, I think this is the best way for me to conclude this episode, but it does need to be said. Um, What I've noticed about the world of religion, because this happens in many houses worship, not all of them, of course, but for example, there are so many houses of worship that lack emotional intelligence when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack emotional literacy when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack emotional self-regulation when it comes to the when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack healthy gelatology when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack healthy hope theory when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack healthy impermanence when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack healthy attitudes when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack kindness when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack empathy when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack life skills-based education when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack healthy moral development when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack people skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack per- healthy personal boundaries when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack healthy professional boundaries when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack healthy positive psychology when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack the five key emotion skills of recognizing, understanding, labeling, expressing, and regulating emotions, meaning the acronym RULER, when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack social intelligence when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack social skills when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack soft skills when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack study skills when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack the theory of multiple intelligences when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack vocational skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack decision-making skills when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack problem-solving skills when it comes to the abused. Many houses of worship lack conflict resolution skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack creative thinking skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack lateral thinking skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack critical thinking skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack interpersonal skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack communication skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack self-awareness skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack assertiveness techniques when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack equanimity skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack resilience and coping with emotions and coping with stress skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack emotional management skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack financial literacy, financial literacy skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack literacy skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack numeracy skills 
when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack citizenship skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack transversal skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack lifelong learning skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack personal professional development skills when it comes to, to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack behavior prevention skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack positive development skills when it comes to the abuse. Many houses of worship lack parenting skills when it comes to the abused. And lastly, many houses of worship lack humor skills when it comes to the abused.